This is the best, 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 best practices in education and Odyssey School podcast. Let's fly away in a cloud. This podcast aims to offer professional resources, practical tools, and inspiring conversations to teachers and parents in their quest for excellent education. And the trees are rainbow, and you'll see the corn every now and then because that's not weird at all. Welcome to Best Practices in Education, an Odyssey School podcast. I am Megan Martell, and I will be your host this week. And I am here in the studio with our high school homeroom and social studies teacher, Hadley Clexton. Hadley's intellectual passions lie in the rich borderlands of history, science, and society. She earned two bachelor degrees simultaneously from Ohio State University, one in the comparative studies of science and technology, and the other in Spanish, with a focus on Latin American literature and language. She went on to earn a master's degree in history from Appalachian State University, where her thesis was a deep dive into the history of science in Latin America, which is part of her inspiration for our talk today. And she has also been published in the peer-reviewed academic journal, The History Teacher. We're very excited to have you in the classroom to walk us through the complexity of understanding decolonialism and super... Oh, what's the word that I want to use? Rebellious and wonderful ways of teaching history. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So tell us how you landed in this field of studying decolonialism and decoloniality, which you will explain the difference for us. When I started graduate school, I really wanted to focus heavily on the history of science because that's my passion. And I wanted to incorporate Latin America, because that is my other passion, the history of science in, and Latin American history. And I felt torn and conflicted because everything I had learned as an undergraduate uh, had led me to believe that there was no history of science in Latin America. That's what I was taught. <laughs> and that's just not true. It's just that the way that we learn history and are taught history here in the United States omits and elides a lot of histories, lowercase histories. So when I started looking for a subject to study for my master's thesis, which is essentially a book-long deep dive into new research, I really wanted to find something within the history of science in Latin America. And so I just started to read and to ask questions and to look around on the internet and find ways that I could in some way incorporate Latin America uh, into this history of science knowledge base that I already had. And the deeper dive I went, the deeper I went, and the more that I learned, and the more that I studied, the more I realized that the history of science that we are taught in school, just histories in general that we are taught in school, are astoundingly universalistic. They're monolithic. They're hegemonic. They're capital H history, not lowercase h, histories. And that there is this vast and rich and amazing histories that we don't learn in school, and that's what I wanted to study, and that's where I wanted to go. And so I just went down the rabbit hole, and the more I read, the more I learned, and the more I learned, the more it blew my mind. So that's how I ended up with uh, decoloniality, which is a particularly Latin American stance on thinking and doing and being and existing in the world. 
So I would love for you to unpack for us, just to kind of try to start in the most broadest sense to understand your work. What is the difference between an uppercase history and a lowercase plural histories? Uppercase history is what we think of when we think of history in high school, middle school, lower, lower school classrooms in the United States. It is the triumphalist arc of the white western man. Wow, that is very poetic and also heartbreaking. <laughs> um, could you maybe pick like one little moment in a history classroom that is an example of that? Of the of of the triumphant arc heteropatriarchy <laughs> in history? Yes. Um let me think of one moment. Oh, there's so many. All of the things. From the very beginning, how we study the creation of the United States itself, where we gloss over the incredible loss that occurred when colonialists came to the United States, what was then not the United States yet, and destroyed entire cultures and destroyed ways of being and destroyed knowledges and knowledge practices or rather let me reframe that they attempted to destroy them but couldn't quite because they persist in the cracks and in the borderlands and those cracks and those borderlands that's where we find the histories the lowercase histories and that's what I'm really interested in exploring more specifically in the history classrooms here at Odyssey. Wonderful very cool essentially what you're describing and you use this term in one of your presentations, the voyage of discovery, and I'm using air quotes here, is a good example of that capital H history because of its omissions and the way it whitewashes and the way it diminishes the experience of um, who or what was quote unquote being discovered and all of the other things that happened beyond discovery. The voyages of discovery are a great example of problematic language in history that is perpetuated. And I actually just discussed this with my students fairly recently. I said, we're going to be talking about the voyages of discovery today. Who can tell me what's problematic about the voyages of discovery? And immediately my students were like, oh yeah, discovery. I mean, what did they discover? There was already people here. And then we went on to have a deeper discussion about colonialism and imperialism and we are still learning about the travels of European men to particular places and why they were important and how they changed and impacted and affected the world. And we are also using things like terminology and lowercase histories of the marginalized peoples who were quote unquote discovered, the peoples who already existed here, uh, to unpack this story more deeply uh, than is normally unpacked in a history classroom. So one of the ways that you decolonize your own history classroom is through using language intentionally. And you do that by calling um, to light these terms that we've been taught and our students have, our high school students have heard throughout their education and that we hear in our culture all the time. And you also try to make a point of not only using English language. That's one of the strategies you use. Can you talk a little bit about that? So... Can I back up to for one second before I answer this question? Because it occurred to me that at the very beginning of this podcast, I didn't acknowledge my own personal standpoint. And yeah. I think that's really important, too. I'm not sure how you could possibly incorporate that in. but um, Tell us your standpoint. Yeah. The standpoint that I come from, and that's really important, is that I am white. I live in the West. I was born here in the United States. And I am in my mid-30s. 
So I speak from a very specific and also a highly privileged point of view. So I do wanna acknowledge that. And I think that's important. That is my standpoint, that is my perspective, and that is where I am speaking from. Now, that said, I would also like to acknowledge that I stand with and think with and would like to be with other perspectives as well, thinking otherwise. I just wanted to say that. I feel like I should have led with that because I think that's really important to acknowledge that. Going back to your question, which I already forgot, I'm sorry. That's okay. My question was about language and how, you know, one of the things... Oh, using other languages. Yeah. So there's a few ways that I incorporate that in the classroom. Is that what you're specifically referring to? One of my favorite ways to do this, because of my own particular perspective and my own particular standpoint, I can use Spanish because I speak Spanish, but when I'm using talking about other languages or other cultures that I don't speak, I like to go straight to YouTube and hear directly from the source. And in a lot of cases, those are more modern sources, and in some cases, they're reconstructed sources. But in those cases, um, it allows students to hear certain perspectives and for me to offer those perspectives in a way that the voices are speaking for themselves and I am not speaking for them, if that makes any sense. Another way I can do it whenever possible is to use original non-anglicized names. In a lot of cases in history classes, we anglicize names or we use English names or we just simply don't use names at all uh, because it's easier. Uh, to omit names from the narrative, specifically names of marginalized peoples and marginalized places. So wherever humanly possible, I use names and non-anglicized names. When we use, use Spanish, I speak Spanish in the classroom and incorporate those words. And another way to incorporate language uh, that's slightly different is to not italicize words that are, that are not English. Mm. Because when we italicize words, we draw attention to the fact that it is other, it is not us. Whereas when we don't italicize them, we incorporate them and incorporate them into our being and into our learning as opposed to otherizing them. I will have to say, as an English teacher, I love the level of detail that you apply the English language and punctuation and capitalization and font treatments to your way of decolonizing your teaching instruction. I think that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Odyssey is founded in and driven forward by partnership, and we'd like to pause for a moment to highlight one of our long-term community partners. Pachacacha Asheville is a local chapter of a nonprofit organization. Pachacacha Night, or Pechacucha, is an evening of visually stimulating, fast-paced presentations on a variety of topics by a variety of speakers. Have fun learning how to pronounce it, and come see what it's all about at the Grove House on February 20th at 7.30 p.m. for our our AIGA collaboration event featuring a smattering of local design enthusiasts. Shows do sell out, but you can buy tickets in advance. Search for P-E-C-H-A-K-U-C-H-A Asheville on that World Wide Web. So um, I want to go back to this idea of strategizing for our listeners who are thinking, yeah, decoloniality is freaking awesome and I want to do that more in my classroom how do I do that so one thing we've already talked about is language and another is thinking about pluriversality Mm -hmm. and you described 
trying to sort of attack lesson planning a unit on, I believe it was medieval, the medieval period, and the ways that you strategized to not just do that in a Eurocentric way. Oh, I think maybe you're referring to the Renaissance? Medieval Africa is what. Sure. But we can talk about the Renaissance. The lesson plan specifically that I referred to in my presentation was on the Renaissance, but I can also yeah. talk about medieval Africa. Okay. Specifically, you want to talk about like ways in which to decolonize that? Okay. So in regards to African history and the world history curriculum, one of the things that I find problematic is that in a lot of high school history textbooks, they will lead with ancient Africa, uh, the Bantu peoples, and then they will skip forward centuries, sometimes millennia, to the transatlantic slave trade. And what that does is it omits centuries of history of an entire continent of diverse peoples and places. And it frames the diversity of Africa, of the entire continent of Africa, as a disempowered, disengaged, relatively unimportant in the world stage apart from the role that they play in slavery. And that is not true. And it is harmful and white supremacist perpetuation of capital H history. So one of the ways that I have tried to remedy that in my own high school world history curriculum is to add additional lessons on African history, where we study the diversities of peoples and the diversities of places and the diversity of beliefs that occurred during medieval and Renaissance Africa and early modern Africa, and the ways in which various African peoples interacted with other parts of the world, not as enslaved peoples, but as free peoples, and as free educated peoples, and as free actors, and as ambassadors, and as politicians, and as kings and queens, and as empowered, beautiful, creative people. And I don't know, I'm sorry, I just don't know where else you want me to go with this. I, mean, I could talk more specifically about the lessons that I did in my classroom, if you want. I just want to say, like, amen. <laughs> I don't even use that word. But I feel like I feel like what you're describing and what you're naming and the way that you name it is really important for people to hear. And I think I, I appreciate, again, the way that you use language to highlight what is important and what the depth and complexity is of the things that I think we take for granted. And by we, I mean also speaking as a white female from the West in her mid-30s. <laughs> we received probably very similar educations. And um, and I know it's logical, I think, for, for anyone with heart to look at a world map and understand that when you teach world history and you met a continent, a millennia of history from one continent that's actually bigger than most of the other continents put together, that there's something more than just ironic about that, but that's deeply wrong and harmful. So your passion and your um, articulation are really important. And for those of us who are listening, who are thinking, amen, yes, I need to do something differently. How do I do it? So I use language a little differently and I need to try to incorporate this information that's been missing and it's also missing from my brain and missing from my textbook from which I teach. So where do I get that information? So can you point us maybe in a direction of where to start? And I know I just I'll say that I feel like you've been building this sort of library of resources over the course of years and you can't possibly convey all of 
that or or directions for us in a minute on a podcast, but maybe just some um, stepping stones or some places to start or some things to keep in mind as people are researching in the World Wide Web full of pitfalls. When I was thinking about that, I was originally thinking that you wanted some resources on specifically decolonial thinkers. So that's what I had prepared. But you want something more broad. So what I would like to say in that regard is that it's important to seek out marginalized voices, whether that's women, people of color, people who don't speak English, regardless, marginalized voices, indigenous voices, Latin American voices, voices from the global south, voices of different religions and different ethnicities and different sexualities and just otherwise, just other, different. Uh, it's important to have those that diversity of voices. But more than that, it's important to acknowledge the fact that a lot of the books that we read, including a lot of books that I have read and found very valuable in my own research, are written by so-called experts who have had the privilege of a Western education that allows them the time, the space, the freedom, the financial stability to go to school and spend time writing and publishing books. Those are not the only voices that need to be heard. There are other voices that need to be heard and there are other ways to hear them. There are internet sites where you can go look. There's plenty of blogs. There's even YouTube. I know that sounds so general, but it's really important to incorporate voices outside of academia, voices of elders and of young people, voices that we don't normally think of as voices that we would incorporate into an academic curriculum, because those voices are valuable too, even though they haven't had the privilege of a fancy Western education and the luxury of the time and space to publish. I didn't prepare a list of places for you because what I did was prepare decolonial authors. Well, I would love to include that list if we can in our liner notes so that our listeners have somewhere that they can click to. I think that'll be really valuable. Thank you for doing that. So we've been bantering around these terms, and maybe I'm I'm the one who's been bantering, (laughs) and you've been very correctly using your terms, and it would be nice to just take a moment and define them really crisply so that I can use them better and our listeners can use them better or more accurately. Um, So there's colonialism and coloniality, and they are different things. Colonialism is the physical act of one group of people colonizing or being in another group of people's physical space through violence, whether that's physical violence, emotional violence, spiritual violence. It is the violent incursion of one group onto another group. Coloniality specifically refers to the structures of power and hegemony that were constructed at the beginning of our modern world system, so many hundreds of years ago, when Europeans first began to venture outward on the quote-unquote voyages of discovery uh, to colonize through violence other peoples of the world. And then to respond to those things, there's decolonialism and decoloniality. So in history, when we think of decolonization, we generally think of the physical removal of those colonial peoples from the places that they had colonized. Decoloniality involves dismantling hegemonies, powers, universalisms, dismantling the structures of inequality that were constructed through colonialism at the beginning of the modern world system. So decoloniality is a standpoint. 
It is a very situated knowledge. It is an ongoing and evolving project, and it is very closely tied to social justice and activism. And you made a point um, that I'm going to invite you to make, because I think you'll do it much more clearly than I can summarize, but about uh, the idea that modernity is just, is coloniality. It's wrapped up together, and and decolonizing or decoloniality is not necessarily about trying to start over, but about trying to um, find the cracks within and sow these seeds of, um, of, of another way of thinking or being. Can you talk more about that? Right. So there would be no modernity, no modern world without colonialism and then the structures of coloniality that emerged from colonialism. This include the structures of racism, sexism, classism, all of the power differentials that we currently see in our modern world and that persist and perpetuate the structures of inequality. There is no way to exist outside of these structures, outside of the structure of coloniality. We cannot simply walk away from it. We cannot burn it all down and start fresh. There's just no way to exist or to be or to do outside of coloniality. What we work on doing, where we find hope and joy and love, are these moments where we can sow seeds of joy and affirmation and agency within these hegemonic structures, within the structure of coloniality. And we sow these seeds, and hopefully they grow in these cracks, in these borderlands, in these liminal places, in liminal spaces, in liminal people. And that is what decolonial re-existence is. It is finding those moments of joy and light and love and agency within these structures of inequality that persist in our world. And it's not about ignoring those hard parts and pretending that they are something that we can just turn around and not look at and not talk about. You have to talk about those things in addition to it. Maybe that's the the re-existence. It is incredibly important to not ignore. It is imperative that we look at the hard parts, that we look at the hard histories, that we do the hard histories, that we teach the hard histories. Because that is what our world is. That is histories. That is our peoples. That's what pluriversality is. Pluriversality is that the diversity of the world is infinite. And that includes the embodied histories of all of the peoples and all of the places and all of the times throughout existence. So we have to look at those histories in order to move forward and in in order to find those moments of re-existence. We have to go through that darkness and acknowledge that darkness and help to heal that historical trauma in order to move forward and find joy and love and hope. And that is what doing hard history is about. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you want your listeners to know or to think about or to leave with? So many things. (laughs) I think that it's for me and hopefully for others, Part of doing and learning and being and teaching hard histories is about being in relation with others in a deeper way than is possible when we only look at history through the capital H structures of inequality. And that doing hard histories and teaching hard histories and learning about embodied histories is vital, not just on an individual level, for healing, 
intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, but also on a societal level for us to go deep and to learn to be with one another in community and to find ways that we can belong together in community in ways that that teaching simple and uncomplicated capital H history just isn't capable of doing. And it's vital. It's vital for all of us. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your passion for this work and the importance and the complexity and helping us unpack it just a little bit. Uh, There's a lot more to unpack. You wrote a whole book about this, so (laughs) it is hard to just boil down a couple of pieces of it. And if you're listening to this and you would like to learn more, we encourage you to, yes, dive into the internet, but also um, check out the liner note links to some of the decolonial authors that can help uh, broaden and deepen your understanding of a really complex topic. And thank you for doing the important work that you're doing in history classrooms. Thank you for making the space to allow me to do so. I appreciate it. Please join us next week for another inspiring conversation with the Best Practices podcast. This has been Best Practices in Education, an Odyssey School podcast. It was recorded here in our music studio in Asheville, North Carolina at Odyssey School engineered by our music director, River Gargarian, and the original theme music was created by the Misfits of Cragberry, an Odyssey student band. Let's fly away in a cloud.